Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Krista Weens on the show. Krista is the executive director of the Central Valley Justice Coalition, and the focus of our conversation is human trafficking, both globally and locally. We dig into definitions, tactics used by traffickers, signs someone is being trafficked, differences between sex trafficking and forced labor beyond the obvious, common misconceptions about human trafficking, approaches to education, Hollywood depictions, fritters, fair trade, law enforcement approaches, and more. Please enjoy our conversation, and Baker will take us there. Fresno's best! Where do you like to eat in Fresno? My favorite is Genza teriyaki, first in Bullard. I haven't small, heard of that. Oh man, it's a small little mom and pop place. The woman who owns it works there. Her name is Dina and she knows my entire family by name. My, it's the kind of place my husband went one night and said, oh, I can't remember what Krista wants. And Dina says, oh, she likes number five, but no green onions. You know, that kind of. What's <laughs> Describe the food. What's your typical order? It's teriyaki. So, you know, rice bowls, teriyaki plates, uh, tempura vegetables. They have a really good, oh, what's the name of the noodle dish that I'm just blanking on right now? That's my daughter's favorite. Anyway. Yeah. But so they do like kids rice bowls, which was always nice when our kids were little, but yeah, their, their teriyaki beef is my personal favorite. And I really like their tempura vegetables. Is it more of a lunch place, dinner place? What's the vibe? Lunch or dinner. It's very casual. So yeah, and they do to go orders as well, but it's a great spot for having lunch and it's pretty steady, but not, not so busy that you can't have a conversation, you know? Mm. And I haven't asked this to people in the past, but I kind of want to start asking it because I think it's helpful. How did you find it? Like, did you just kind of walk through the door? Is it someone recommended it to you? It was in the neighborhood. So that's the area I grew up in, in the Hoover high school neighborhood and have been in and around that neighborhood for the majority of my life. And it's been there for ages. <laughs> so it's kind of, I think people in the neighborhood know a lot about it, but probably outside of that neighborhood, not so much. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of like a neighborhood staple. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Which I have talked about this with people in the past, just the idea that we don't really have that as much in Fresno or, you know, the kind of neighborhood restaurants, but maybe this is your version of that. Yeah, I think so. I Like I said, she knows our family and they're wonderful people. Yaki Soba, by the way, I thought of it. <laughs> so we're going to make a really hard turn here uh, to talk about human trafficking uh, from teriyaki. And we're going to start with kind of terms and definitions, because I think that's always a good place to start. And a lot of this discussion will be around definitions, but also misconceptions, uh, because everyone has heard the term human trafficking probably seen movies where it's featured, probably read articles about it or social media posts about it. Particularly during COVID, there was kind of a growth in this, both in information and misinformation. And so I think just being really clear with our definitions to start, I think it's probably the most helpful place that we can begin with. So what is human trafficking and why do we use this term and not slavery? Oh, good question. Yeah. So At its core, human trafficking is the exploitation of one person's vulnerability for another person's profit. That's the really basic definition. There's a legal definition about harboring, transfer, sale, or receipt of persons through international or national boundaries, like, you know, all of the the long words. But really what we're talking about is using another person's vulnerability for your own profit. And that you do that through labor or through sex. And so when we talk about vulnerability, that feels like an important place to start because the reality is every single person has vulnerabilities. We tend to view that word as a weakness, but when we do education and and at the Justice Coalition, education is core to what we do. So what we want to do is make sure that everyone understands that being vulnerable is just a part of being human. There is no way to exist as a human being without vulnerabilities. And so healthy community has vulnerable people and supportive people. And those supportive people come around and help us in our vulnerable spaces, but exploiters use those vulnerabilities for their own benefit instead. 
So that's that's the core of what human trafficking is. And, and we talk about the two areas of sex trafficking and labor trafficking, but those also overlap. Okay. Let's jump into tactics that people traf- trafficking victims use. And I wanted to start here and not some other places because I feel like this is one of the points we'll come back to in misconceptions that people are most confused by about how, you know, the tactics that are used to pull people into trafficking. Yeah, that's great. They keep changing for one. And so I think that's one reason why it tends to get a lot of attention. And often the the popular media that's out there is fear-based and makes us feel like any of us could be a victim at any time. And so there's a balance here, right? Because we want to acknowledge that everyone has vulnerabilities that could be exploited. And there are some folks who are more likely to be taken advantage of than others. So the things that we see getting a lot of attention right now are stories of, you know, my windshield wipers were left up in the target parking lot. So I knew I was going to be trafficked or the gas station handle had a scarf tied around it. And I knew I was going to be trafficked. Those are unlikely. (laughs) And we don't actually know any real stories of person being identifying that as their entrance into trafficking. Primarily what we talk about is relationships. People are trafficked by someone that they know. And it may not be someone that they've known long or that they know particularly well, but there is a relationship of some kind that starts there. So some common examples would be a romantic relationship, a boyfriend or a girlfriend who spends time making somebody feel really special, taking them on nice dates, buying them you know, special things, treating them well. And then all of a sudden things change and they say, you know, we just really need enough rent to get through this month. So if you would just do this one thing, one time, I'll never ask you again. And then of course, once they do it one time, everything has changed now. And that's a very difficult situation because this is a person that you love, that you care about. And so the victim doesn't recognize what's been happening in the moment. So that's one example. Online is a significant issue right now. Everyone has access to social media, which means everyone has access to each other. And so lots of trafficking is beginning online right now. And it used to be that we would talk about how traffickers would use social media to get youth in particular, to leave their homes and meet up with them. But what we know now is that over half of youth who have been exploited say that they never met their trafficker in person. Their exploitation happened online. And I think that's one thing that many parents and adults don't recognize is a reality. So it's important, I failed to mention in my first definition that when we talk about trafficking, we're talking about force, fraud, and coercion. Those are the three means of manipulation that exist in trafficking and uh, make that different than other forms of exploitation or abuse. So force, fraud, and coercion, all of those things happen in relationship. When we're thinking about potential victims, you know, there's a lot of organizations that put out things like indicator cards. And Mm -hmm. there's also, you know, in public education, we use kind of ACEs for different Mm -hmm. reasons. What What are some of the most common tools used to help identify people that could be or are victims? Yeah. You know, the reality is many victims self-identify. And so they're coming forward and asking for help. We want to educate the public so that we can be better at recognizing these red flags. That's what we call them, because victims don't often recognize that they're being exploited until later. So the earlier we can be part of that process, the better. So there are many things that we can be looking for in a workplace situation, anyone that's being unpaid or being only paid in tips, someone who doesn't have control of their own documents, or they're working excessive hours for the kind of job that they have. So for example, you know, a firefighter works excessive hours, right? They've got strange schedules, but a massage therapist shouldn't. There's no need for a massage parlor to be open at 2 a.m., right? So those kinds of things are things that we as consumers can pay attention to. If we know that, or we suspect that someone is maybe being exploited in their workplace, questions like what would happen if you quit? What would happen if you had a conversation with your boss about this? Those can often give us some key insights because if we feel threatened or we are afraid that, you know, if the answer to that question is, well, then they're going to go after my kids. That's a huge red flag, right? So someone who feels like they can't make another decision, 
And when we're talking about relationships, romantic relationships, anyone that doesn't have control over their own belongings, they have to ask their significant other for money to purchase something or for permission, or their maybe their cell phones being highly controlled, obviously signs of physical abuse. And you mentioned ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. That's a huge overlap in trafficking situations as well. Again, vulnerabilities, right? So those who experienced higher levels of childhood adverse experiences, they are more likely to be taken advantage of as they become older as well. Trauma is a significant part of what we're dealing with. How would the human trafficking landscape change if there was a way to ensure no one under the age of 18 had social media? Ooh, Good question. I think it would be so much more difficult for youth to be recruited. There are still in-person recruiting that happens. We know it happens a lot on campuses and schools and group homes and places where teens who have already been exploited are exposed to one another. But that the number of opportunities would be the, such a small percentage of what's available to youth right now. We hear so many stories of kids who are engaging in what feel like normal conversations online through direct messaging, and their family members have no idea. It feels like a normal conversation with a friend, and then all of a sudden they begin sending pictures, or they start you know, a FaceTime call or Instagram call, and it's an inappropriate image. And suddenly things change so fast. So what I see on social media is it's a very similar pattern of grooming, but in a far condensed period of time. So instead of taking weeks and months to get to know somebody, you know so much about them before you've ever reached out because you can see their photos, you know how old they are, you have some idea of where they go to school or at least what city they live in, you know if they're involved in sports, you know if they're mad at their parents because they posted something about it. You know, all of it is out there before the first conversation begins, but the youth on the other end of that message may not recognize how much information that individual has. And we see this in video gaming as well. So I think when we talk about things like Instagram, the messaging has been that girls are victims. We don't talk much about video games, but the reality is these exact same things are happening on video through video game platforms and to boys in both places. How do you think about the role of responsibility in this? You know, you've got parents involved, you've got large corporations that benefit by having kids on there. I mean, I, I think there was an article that just came out this week that was looking at all the data that was accumulated by Meta for underage kids being on their platforms it seems like there's a there's a profit motive there as well. So when you're looking at the landscape here, obviously parents need to be responsible for what their kids do. I mean, they're paying for the cell phones that they're using to access social media. Like, how do you think about responsibility? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lawsuit right now, I think, involving 33 states against Meta and their policies around children. There's direct evidence through leaked documents about the fact that they knew the damage that would be done to kids and they moved forward with it anyway because profit was the primary goal. So I absolutely think that there is a level of responsibility there for corporations. And I know that it's tricky because we're still trying to figure out what it means to have privacy and public access and our laws aren't always up to speed with current technology. So I know that these are complicated conversations, but I think it's ridiculous to believe that corporations like Meta are not profiting off of the exploitation of our kids. They absolutely are. When it comes to parent responsibility, I'm a parent. I have four young kids at home. And I can tell you, I'm probably more educated about this than most parents are. And still, it's overwhelming. Because in 2020, it all changed again, right? My kids, we had pretty strict rules around social media and um, around cell phone usage. And then all of a sudden they were trapped at home with no access to the outside world. And I had a, at the time, nine-year-old, I think, who was really wanting to text friends. And at the time, my first response was, no way, you're nine. We don't text at the age of nine. And then I recognized he was so lonely. He had no other outlet and here his older siblings could message people and he couldn't. So we had to rethink how we approach this. And I think a lot of families are in this situation. My kindergartner was given a self or not a cell phone, a tablet by the district so that she could do school. Right. But I would have never let her have a tablet at the age of five. 
And now her, their, her future has changed. There's no going back from that. So I feel like sometimes we blame parents for being thrust into this new world where the reality is we're still working full-time. We're still trying to figure out how to get our kids enrolled in all the right sports and connected to healthy community. And now I have this whole other aspect that I really am trying to figure out and it keeps changing and it's complicated and I'm behind the eight ball on it, right? So I do want parents to know that there are programs like Bark that you can use to put on your phones and help monitor. I really like Bark personally. There are others, QStudio is one. There are multiple platforms, but I would encourage parents to look into some kind of software to help them. And the goal that I always say is it's not so that you can secretly spy on your kids. It is a tool to help you have conversation with your kids so that instead of saying, I can't believe you messaged this and getting them in trouble, that only fuels secrecy. Instead, what we're saying is, hey, I see this message come through. I have some concerns. Can we talk about it? Let's together figure out a solution, right? So we're equipping our kids, giving them some scaffolding to move into this digital world in a safe space. But I also want to say we're talking a lot about parents and the reality is a lot of students, a lot of youth who are incredibly vulnerable to exploitation are in the care of Department of Social Services. They're living in group homes and foster homes and their lives have been upended. And it's not as simple as saying the parents are paying for their cell phones because actually in those situations, the state is paying for their cell phones and foster families have a really difficult challenge. We call them resource families now, but they have a really difficult challenge when this kid comes to the house with a cell phone that belongs to them and their social worker says it is their property and the, so the resource parent can't have control over it. And yet they're the most vulnerable kids that we have. So there's nobody monitoring what's happening online. So what we really need are social workers that are um, up to speed, that are well-educated. We need some of the foster agencies to be better equipped about how to help their resource families have these kinds of conversations and understand more clearly what the laws say. I want to distinguish between two types of trafficking so we can talk about the unique challenges of each. And you mentioned before sex trafficking and forced labor. Obviously, we live in kind of, you know, a major agricultural center in our state. And so there's a lot of undocumented people around, you know, there's been lots of articles written about forced labor in the agricultural industry. But then, you know, obviously sex trafficking is something that is prominent in Fresno as well. Can you talk uh, a little bit about the unique challenges with each of those and kind of distinguish how you approach them? Yeah, sure. So let's start with labor trafficking. I think one challenge there is that it's really hard to identify. So we have identified labor trafficking in so many different areas in Fresno, in construction, in hotels, in restaurants, in agriculture, and door-to-door -door solicitation. There's plenty of places where labor trafficking has been identified. But for you and I, the average consumer, it's very difficult to know if the person who is doing my nails is being trafficked or is being paid well, right? If the person bussing my table at the restaurant is a member of the family and that's why they're always there, or if they're actually never allowed to leave. So that's one significant challenge that we face. I think another is the reality that in labor trafficking, we as the consumer have something to gain by not asking better questions. And that's a hard truth to admit that I actually am responsible for labor trafficking when I don't ask who made this product and why can I get it so cheaply? So changing labor trafficking requires us to change our practices. It means that you and I have to commit to spending more money for products if that means that people will be treated well. And we live in a culture that does not value that, that we value getting things at the lowest price, the best bargain, and we value things like fast fashion where you know this shirt I'm wearing will be out of style next year and I'll need to buy another one. So it requires a lot more push against culture, I think, in fighting labor trafficking. In sex trafficking, you mentioned at the beginning here that we've had a lot more attention around this. I've, I've never seen a person who is ambivalent about sex trafficking. I think generally people understand that this is a real issue that they want to combat. The problem is there's so much misinformation and misinformation 
fuels this belief that I can identify trafficking only in this specific space. And then I don't see it in any of the other spaces, right? So people go unnoticed because you think that, you know, a 17 year old is just being promiscuous, right? And they get labeled as something else when in reality, they've been recruited and groomed and exploited. And yes, they might be saying, I made this choice and I'm not a victim. But when we understand that anyone under the age of 18 who's trading sex for something of value is by definition a victim of human trafficking, it changes our perspective, it changes our response, and allows people who have been taken advantage of to actually get help. So lots of misinformation on both ends, and that is a constant challenge for us. The last topic in kind of terms and definitions I want to discuss is the different roles organizations play in combating human trafficking. So can you distinguish the role that law enforcement plays, social services play, and then nonprofits play in this space? Yeah. So, and I want to start by saying that we all work together. And when we work together well, we are the most effective for those who are highly impacted. So that's our goal. The Central Valley Justice Coalition, the coalition part of that is important to us. We believe that one aspect we bring to our community is helping unite those various different sectors. So law enforcement is an important partner because they're often the first to recognize an issue. They're the people who get called when there's a problem. When you and I see something sketchy, we're not going to engage on our own. We're going to call for backup. And so it's the officers who come out that recognize what's happening. And so in the best situations, those officers recognize that someone is being victimized and they get resources for those victims. And in those cases, they're reaching out to the nonprofit partners. They're calling those organizations to say, hey, we've got somebody here that needs a place to go, that needs you know, help with work, and needs help with a visa, and they can get connected to those nonprofit partners. It's important that our law enforcement be trained and be trained well, and that when we have something the size of Fresno Police Department, for example, that is a, an ongoing task because we continue to get new officers. So we need to make sure that people recognize human trafficking for what it is. And we've come a long way in that, just in the 10 years that I've been doing this. Um, and then you mentioned social services. I think social services plays an enormous role because we know that those who have been in the care of DSS are much more likely to be exploited. So it's so important that social workers understand the reality of human trafficking and learn to identify it, especially when we're talking about labor trafficking. In fact, what we've been learning more and more is that labor trafficking victims start very young. They're not always immigrants like we tend to think. And so when social workers and law enforcement can begin to recognize that forced criminality is also a form of labor trafficking, then instead of labeling these kids as shoplifters, for example, we we start asking questions about what motivated that, who asked you to do that, what who's getting the money from you selling the thing that you stole. And when we ask those kinds of questions, we can begin to recognize that these kids are victims. So social services plays a big role, not to mention they're also providing the care and the support and the training for the families and the group homes. I mean, it's it's an enormous task. And so we're grateful that here in Fresno, we have particular CSEC unit that's commercially sexually exploited children and particular social workers who are trained in that. And then from the nonprofit standpoint, there are many agencies who partner together here in the Central Valley from all angles of this issue because no one organization can do it all. So we primarily focus on preventing human trafficking. We do lots of education, outreach, street outreach, trying to get to folks who are the most vulnerable. Our goal is that you not hear the big stories. We always say the best story is the one you never hear. We want to get to people before they're taken advantage of. But we also need partners that can provide housing, that can connect with folks for drug rehab, that can give work training and therapy and help with, like I said, visas and immigration documents and lots of various aspects that are required in helping a victim of trafficking re-enter life and learn a new way of existing and being independent and all the challenges that they're going to face because of the trauma that they 
have endured. And so what does it look like to support people for the long haul? We need lots of partners involved in that. Yeah. And we could probably spend this whole conversation just talking about, you know, how to help people reintegrate back in society when their body is just carrying so much trauma with them. That's you know, right. It comes down to teachers and really everybody has a role in supporting people as they work to at least, you know, reintegrate. And, you know, you'll never truly get past something like that, obviously, right. but at least, you know, move small steps forward. Yeah. Um, and learn to make it part of your story, but not all of you. And that's that's a significant piece. Yeah. Okay. We're going to go through some rapid fire myths. And if you'd quickly just describe why the thing I'm throwing at you is a myth, and then maybe some facts uh, that counter the myth. And then I've got about six or seven of these. So we'll go through them quickly. You kind of talked about a few of them already, but I just want to give you a chance to hit each of them individually. Great. Uh, so the first one, human trafficking is mainly something that goes on in other countries, not the United States. Mm -hmm. Right. That is a very common myth. I think it's becoming a little bit less common in the last few years, thankfully. But absolutely, human trafficking is happening here in the United States. In fact, our statistics from the Central Valley, we have participated in a data project. And then the Central Valley Against Human Trafficking has been collecting data for a number of years. And the majority of trafficking victims who have been identified in the United States have been from the United States. They've been U.S. citizens, U.S. nationals. So it is a myth to believe that this is something that's happening overseas only. It's obviously happening all over the world. But yeah. it's I mean, that connects it to the next myth that I was going to talk about, which is this idea that 99% of people being trafficked are undocumented immigrants. Where do you think that comes from? And what's, what's the actual truth there? Mm, where does it come from? I think human nature, we want to identify the threat as someplace else. <laughs> It's scary to imagine that it could happen to somebody like me. And so we tend to try to identify it outside of us. And then that allows us sometimes to blame it as a problem that other people have created instead. So I think that might be where it comes from. That's just my theory. But the reality is that everyone is vulnerable. Anyone can be exploited. And here I'm looking at the Central Valley Against Human Trafficking data for the, from 2010 to 2022. We identified 1,800 victims of human trafficking. Of those, 1,512 of them were domestic. So the vast majority are from the United States. Next one, and this is a complicated one, I understand, so I don't expect a short answer. The idea that coercion is necessary in order for commercial sex, sex acts to be human trafficking. Oh, that's good. Yeah. In a commercial sex act where the victim is over the age of 18, we need to prove force, fraud, or coercion, but not always coercion. So force is violence or the threat of violence. Somebody who believes that they might rightly be hurt or someone they love might be hurt qualifies. So you may not have to coerce somebody if you can convince them that you'll go after their children right? That's, that's force. That's violence. Human trafficking is inherently violent. Fraud is tricking somebody pretending to be something that you're not. So one of those three has to be proven if the victim is over the age of 18. Under the age of 18, we don't have to prove any of them because the age of consent is 18 years old, which means that somebody under the age of 18 cannot consent to having sex or performing sexual acts or trading pictures or videos of themselves in exchange for anything of value. And I think that's really important because when we talk about sex trafficking, we, we imagine a, an exchange of money. But what we see in minors is that it's not always money. It might be drugs. It might be a vape pen. It might be cell phones. It might be AirPods. It might be shoes. And so anyone that's trading those things for someone else's sexuality is exploiting them. So we want to help people recognize that the person responsible for that is the person who gave them the stuff, not the youth at the center of it. And they often don't recognize that they're being taken advantage of. Yeah, we often talk in public education trainings around trauma, abuse, trafficking, even that if we notice a student has received a series of gifts, then that mm -hmm. should be some kind of indicator for us to maybe pay a little closer attention to them. All right. Next myth. When victims of human trafficking are in public, they can and should seek help. Mm. 
I would love it if that were true. <laughs> or maybe that they do. Is, is... Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's important to note that there is a human trafficking hotline. So everyone should know that the human trafficking hotline is 888-3737-888. That is available in 50 states in 200 different languages, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So there is a hotline. Now think about what it takes to call a hotline. Well, you have to have access to a phone, right? A phone that's not being monitored by somebody else. You have to have enough time to make a phone call that might put you on hold, that then they're gonna ask you where you are and your location. I mean, there's so many pieces to that. So it can be really hard. Trafficking victims are sometimes in public, uh, are often in public. That does not mean that they're not being monitored in public. So you might say, well, I don't understand why if they're working in that restaurant, they couldn't just tell a customer that they needed help. Well, you don't know who's watching them and you don't know what they've been threatened with. So if they were to tell a customer, I'm being held against my will, the boss might overhear that. They might have access to their kids, their family members. They might have all of their documentation. They might've been told that nobody's gonna believe you and you're gonna get deported. There's so many things that factor into a person's story that we don't know. So it is not always possible for a person to ask for help. It often takes a very long time for them to be able to get into a place that's safe enough to do that. Okay. Next one. Women and girls make up most of sex trafficking victims. Oh, good one. This is really hard because the data that we have is a little behind the times, but there's a recent study that suggests that actually up to 50% of sex trafficking victims are males or non-binary individuals. Reality is we haven't been screening boys the same way that we have been screening girls. We have these tools that can be used for both, but we don't always use them for both because we assume that girls are victims. We ask them different questions. In fact, here's a, a classic example. We do lots of training in schools and, and with educators and administrators. And for a long time, we've been talking about just like what you mentioned, if somebody shows up with a lot of gifts or if somebody shows up with two cell phones, these are things that we should ask questions about. And so we have a lot of folks who are aware now and are looking for girls who are getting a lot of gifts and have two cell phones. And they begin to see that those girls might be victims. But if a boy shows up with two cell phones to school, what do you suppose is the first assumption that is made about them? They're selling drugs. That's it. Yep. You got two cell phones, you're selling drugs. And if you show up with a whole bunch of nice new stuff because you're a boy, well, you got it because you were selling drugs, right? So we just don't use the same tools in the same way. We change it based on gender. So boys we know are significantly underreported. In addition to that, because we have all of these resources for girls, it is challenging for a boy to identify that they need help because we don't often have something to offer them. So what they're going to get out of it is a label, but they're not going to get a lot of resources unless we begin to change the ways that we approach this. So right now, there are only there are not enough beds for victims of human trafficking in the United States in general. But of those that are available, only 5% of them are available for males. That's something that needs to change because how can boys and men say, I need help if we don't have help to give them? So at the Justice Coalition, we have a male youth advocate now. We're very excited about that because it allows boys to say, hey, here's somebody that I think I can talk to about what's going on. All right. Last myth. Most trafficking involves some kind of physical or violent crime like kidnapping. Absolutely untrue. Most victims of human trafficking are exploited by somebody that they are in relationship with. So the Central Valley Human Trafficking Data Project was something we participated in from 2019 to 2022. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask about statistics. If we know kind of who the person they know typically is, like what's the most common trafficker in relationship yeah. with the victim. Yeah. So out of over 1,600 victims identified in this report, 23.9% of them, so almost a quarter of them, were trafficked by someone they were in a romantic relationship with. The next 23% were trafficked by family or friends. So that is nearly half, 
48% of victims who are trafficked by somebody who said, I love you. Somebody who was supposed to be protecting them and looking out for them. And when you think about what would happen if somebody who has been caring for you, who loves you, who has had your best interests at heart, or at least was your best shot at the next stage of your life, if that person begins to exploit you, to abuse you, what do you do? How, what Think about for yourself what changes if the person that you love most in the world begins to hurt you and what might happen in your own mind about that relationship? Who might you blame for that? And then why might it be really difficult for you to ask for help? Because the shame that you're facing, because you've internalized that this is your fault, or because you feel responsible because you actually do love and care for this person and you don't want to see them go to prison. You don't want to see them be hurt. You don't want to see their reputation damaged. There are just so many additional layers to all of this. Uh, I've got two education questions before we change to the next topic. The first one, let's say I gave you the choice. Uh, you could have a 30-second ad in the Super Bowl where you could discuss any aspect of human trafficking you would want, or you have a semester with a 1,000 students where you could get into the nitty-gritty and the details and really work with these 1,000 kids. Which would you choose? Oh, give me the semester any day. Yeah? So <laughs> a 30-second ad is maybe a little overrated relative to a smaller group that you can spend time with? I think that's right. A 30 second ad, you're going to do whatever you can to grab people's attention. And unfortunately, the things that grab people's attention are not the everyday things that we're surrounded by, right? This is why the TikTok viral things are so popular, because in 30 seconds, I can make you convinced that we all should be really afraid of a certain kind of person, right? Yeah. But when we really, if we really want to change human trafficking, if we want to eradicate it, we have to take a hard look at some significant aspects of our own culture. We need to look at generational poverty. We need to look at unhoused populations. We need to look at childhood trauma. We need to look at sexual abuse. We need to look at our communities and what are the resources that are lacking in those communities. And we need to ask really hard questions about what will it take for us to provide those things so that those vulnerabilities cannot be exploited. And that takes a lot longer than 30 seconds. Okay, let's say I was uh, tasking you with designing two classes, one for a group of high school seniors focused on trafficking and one for adults. What would be different about the classes? I think for the high school seniors, I would want them to understand a lot of things about the workplace and about healthy relationships. So I would take a lot of like, here's what to expect in a good situation in the world. Healthy relationships look like this. These are people, you know, when you you can change your mind, you can say something they don't like and they might be disappointed, but they don't threaten you, right? These, I want you to have a good picture because as a senior in high school, you're still figuring out what the world is supposed to look like. So the more we can do to set them up to expect good, healthy workplaces and relationships, the more likely they are to have the hairs on their neck go up when it's not that, right? So I would want to equip them for what good spaces look like. For the adults, I want to help them understand the underlying causes of trafficking so that they can begin to recognize some of these red flags long before exploitation occurs. They can begin to recognize what kids are up against. Um, I want them to be better, ed better educated about social media, online safety, I, but not in a way that is fear-based. I want adults to understand that social media is not a cesspool. It's not a horrible space and it's not the fake world. That actually social media and online activity is a part of everyday reality for kids and it can be used in really good ways. So instead of treating it like the danger zone, how do we talk to our youth about ways to engage in healthy ways in these spaces, just like we prepare them for crossing the street, right? This is how I talk to my own kids about it. When you were learning to walk to school, I held your hand. And then when I felt like you could walk and cross the street on your own, I still walked behind you, right? Until I felt like you could do that piece pretty safely. And this is what we're doing in social media and online spaces as well, is helping hold their hands until they can move forward more safely. But when we do that, we build trust that allows them to come back to us when they've made a mistake. 
And we as adults need to expect that kids will make mistakes and stop acting like they have let us down. We need to remember that we made them too. That's how we learned. And it is developmentally appropriate for them to screw up. So what do we want? We want them to come to us when they've made a mistake so that they don't make it worse. Mm-hmm. We always, everybody touches the hot pan. It's just part of the process. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right. So we're going to move on to the next section, which I call overrated versus underrated. I'm going to throw a bunch of you know movies, books, restaurants at you, influential people. Tell me why that you think they're either over or underrated and why in a sentence or two. Oh, boy. Um, okay. So we'll start with one that I ask everybody, Mean Ed's Pizza. No, overrated. Okay. Why? I hate it. <laughs> Are you from here originally? I am from here. And oh, I have so wow. many friends who, when they come back to Fresno, they really want me and Ed's. That's all they want. I do not enjoy their crust. They don't like, I don't like mushrooms anyway, but then canned mushrooms on top of it. I mean, it just, I'm not, I'm not a fan. Sorry, me and Ed's. Yeah. I know. I know you've got some diehards and I hope they stick with you. Next one, the movie Taken starring Liam Neeson. <laughs> Overrated. <laughs> Why? Entertaining. I mean, if you're looking for just something fun to watch, I suppose that's fun. It's overrated in my line of work because that's what people now expect trafficking looks like. And then they expect that there is a Liam Neeson out there trying to find everybody. And if there's not, then they're willing to be him. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that's not how victims get helped. We don't need people who are trying to raid and rescue. We need people that are working to combat culture even more than that. So Yeah, the vigilantism celebrated in a lot of Hollywood is is really troubling. Yeah. Next one, the writing of Anne Lamott. Oh, I'm trying to think of what the last Anne Lamott book I read was, but I would say underrated. I think Hallelujah Anyway is the last one I read by her. And I don't think enough people know about her. I really, I really appreciate She's really it. prolific. She publishes a lot. And so yeah. I haven't read her in years. I know you've read her. Uh-huh. Um, and I wasn't sure if that productivity affected the quality of her writing at all, or if she's just one so. of those prolific people. I think I really appreciate the language that she uses. She feels really approachable to me. She's a, a, a faith-based writer. So lots of her writings have an element of faith, but in a more irreverent way that personally appeals to me. <laughs> She's not a person that grew up in church. So her her background is maybe a little different than some. And I I just find her so relatable and down to earth. So yeah, if if people haven't read anything by her, I I highly recommend it. But Hallelujah anyway is a nice short one. And the other one is Help Thinks Wow. For anyone who's not really sure what prayer is, I like that one. It's simple. And her premise is that there are basically three prayers. Help, thanks, and wow. Next (laughs) one. The idea that more information is always better. Ooh, that's overrated. I really like information personally. I I tend to listen to lots of podcasts and read lots of books. and But I also recognize that that sometimes for me comes from an unhealthy belief that I can control the world around me if I just know it all. And I think surrender is something that a lot of us need more of. The yeah, reality well, is we, we don't know it all. Yeah. Well, in my background in education kind of leads me to the con- you know, similar conclusion that you've arrived at in part because you need interpretive tools to understand information and those take a while to acquire. And so when you just arrive at a statistic isolated on social media posts or something like that, and you don't maybe have a background in that, chances are you might come to the wrong conclusions without realizing it. And so I'm I'm on the same page with you with that. All right, we'll move on to the next one. Uh, (laughs) Effective altruism. The idea that we need to analyze and understand the most effective ways to give our money because a lot of nonprofits waste it with overhead and admin costs. Ooh, it's tricky. I think it's underrated in one aspect, which is that I think a lot of people do donate money to people they believe in and to causes they believe in without asking enough questions about where that money's going and who's really impacted by it. So I know for us at the Justice Coalition, it's important that we are financially transparent. You can find all of our budgets and our income statements on our website. We want you to know where your money is going. So I think often as donors, we're too trusting. 
the overrated piece of it for me is that sometimes there are so many rules and regulations around how people give or grants or things like that, that it can make it complicated. So people have approached us, for example, wanting to give a particular chunk of money to be used in a specific way, but that may not be the way that we've identified as being the most helpful. So do we take the money to do a project that we know is not going to be beneficial or do we say, no, thank you. We actually don't think that will be helpful. So that, that can be a different challenge. There's no free lunch. Uh, um, Mennonite fritters. (laughs) Depends raisin or apple. Oh, I I like mine without any fruit. I just like the straight dough. Maybe a little extra sugar sprinkled extra on. Extra sugar. Yeah, yeah, I'm down with the extra sugar. Or glaze is really the... So my favorite, apple with glaze. That's the best option. I haven't uh, had apple. I need to, oh, I need man. to try this. That's it. Yeah, raisin fritter is overrated, but apple fritter is underrated. Okay, next one. Going to a seminary for graduate school. <laughs> I really enjoyed mine. <laughs> I did this. I went to a seminary as well for my graduate work, so... I can so, relate yeah, to this. I think maybe underrated. I think uh, seminary can often be viewed as like, that's only what pastors do. And maybe don't recognize that there are lots of other programs. My particular program was an online one designed for people like me that were in the workplace. And I loved it. I've learned so much about myself and gained some really important connections and relationships through it. So shout out to the Ministry Leadership and Culture program at FPU. All right. Next one. Another book, Everyday Justice by Julie Clausen. Ooh, underrated. This is the book that got me started in fighting trafficking. I say it's the book that messed up my life. I did not have any idea how pervasive human trafficking was. I'm not even sure I had the language for it, to be honest. That was back in like 2010. And this helped me recognize that I was responsible because of the ways that I was spending my money. And it really changed how I viewed this issue. And I don't think very many people know about it. So I I recommend it. The truth is it's probably a bit outdated as far as statistics and things like that now, but the concepts are still really relevant. So good one. All right, next one. The label that's attached to some products, fair trade. Hmm. I don't Do want to say accurate, is it kind of like organic where it's kind of getting more and more vague as to what it actually means? I don't think so. I think that the fair trade labeling is reliable and trustworthy and it is a good option for consumers. I think if you're buying fair trade, you can be confident that the companies are doing what they say they're doing, investing in the communities, paying people fair wages, things like that. I think the challenge that and the my hemming and hawing there is that it's expensive to be part of the fair trade organization. So it can be cost prohibitive for some small companies. So I think of Lana Coffee here in Fresno. They are not fair trade, but they are direct trade. They have a direct relationship with the supplier. They know where the money is going. They know the faces and the names of the people that are harvesting the coffee beans, but it would cost them so much money to become part of the fair trade organization that they would then have to pass that cost on to consumers and they may not be as competitive. So that it's a bit of a challenge for smaller companies. Okay. Two more. The words we use to describe and label people, are those more important than we think? I, I think we often label people as a way of dismissing people. And we probably don't realize how often we do it. We do it online pretty frequently and without a lot of thought. We do it when we just walk by somebody in person and we say, oh, that's one of those people. And as soon as we do it, they are not like us. So when we other people, then we don't feel the same attachment to them. We don't feel the same responsibility for their situation in life. And it creates a separation between us and them that makes their situation, not my problem. All right. Our next section is more Fresno focused. In preparation for this interview, I read a paper that you published in 2021 where you looked at a case study in Fresno. Can you discuss the case study for us and what led to writing that particular paper? Oh, you do your research. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) 
Yeah. So there was a pastor in town locally who was arrested in an illicit massage business here in Fresno. So just for a little bit of background, we have hundreds of massage parlors here. Many of them are actually fronts for human trafficking. And this individual was arrested in what's called a reverse sting. And he was soliciting sex in a massage parlor in town. He the challenge around this arrest and this kind of arrest just really highlighted a lot of issues in understanding what happens. And so then we had a church trying to figure out how to respond when he was saying he was innocent. And when in Fresno, when you are arrested for a first time solicitation offense, you are given an opportunity to participate in something called PAR prostitution, abatement, and rehabilitation. So colloquially, it's called John School. But guys that are arrested can take almost like your driving class, right? Like you get your record clean. And so that's what he was able to do is to participate in this class and wipe his record. And as long as he didn't get caught again in the next whatever period of time, I think it's six months, then it wouldn't go on his record. And that meant that he was able to say, see, I was found not guilty but actually that's not what he was found. <laughs> and so the church was in a really difficult position knowing how to respond to this, but it also highlighted that it's a lot more common than we tend to think. And I think for a lot of people, it opened their eyes to the fact that what he was participating in was in fact sex trafficking, not just consensual adults, not, not, not just an affair, which is how some people wanted to label it, but that actually he was paying to sexually abuse somebody who had no choice in the matter. That's, it's hard, it's dark, and I wish that it was uncommon, but um, it's unfortunately more prevalent than I think we recognize, uh, especially as issues of pornography increase in our society and pornography fuels human trafficking. So yeah, my case study was looking at how the church responded to that and then how we as a community can shift the ways that we respond to folks who are hurting. I believe that he was hurting. I believe that he needed some support, but I don't know that people recognized it and he certainly wasn't asking for it. So how can we build in systems where people can self-report that they're struggling without fear of losing everything? That was one of my suggestions is that churches should allow pastors to go seek counseling without reporting what they're seeking counseling for. Do you know where he is now? I do. He is in another state as a pastor in another church. Let's talk about law enforcement. What's one area where you've seen law enforcement handle trafficking situations well, and where's one area where you'd hope they'd improve? I've seen lots of them of areas where they've handled it well. Here in Fresno, I feel like we have a very trained law enforcement and they often are responding with a victim advocate. So they recognize somebody in need and rather than locking up a person who's been victimized, they instead ask if they want help and they can call one of the local organizations to get them some case management or some housing or you know help change their situation. So I see that quite regularly. I think we do have stories of where law enforcement has not recognized that individual was being trafficked. In fact, this study, let's see if I can pull it up here real quick, but study from the Covenant House in New Jersey says that 83% of youth labor trafficking victims were arrested before the age of 22 and 75% of them not arrested for the underlying forced crime. So in youth labor trafficking, we know that kids are getting arrested, they're being put in juvenile hall, but they're not recognizing that there's something underlying that that um, needs to be addressed. So I think that is an area of growth really for all of us, not just law enforcement, but our organizations as well is, and this goes back to your labels question too, but are we labeling and disposing of kids who actually really are hurting and in need of support? Are we putting them in places that are not built for trauma, that are not built for healthy communities, and then expecting them somehow to be different when they come out? I think we do that far too often. Final question before we get to books, and this is something I've started asking people recently. 
because I do think it's an interesting way, you know, way to look at a city. What do you think your work on human trafficking shows you about Fresno that people in other industries or other walks of life might not see or understand? Mm. I'll, I'll give you a positive and a negative. So I think one positive that this work has helped me to see is that there are so many people who are working towards healthy community. There are people and partners and organizations that we work with who would not identify themselves as anti-trafficking organizations. And yet the work that they do prevents trafficking because they're teaching kids to read or they're opening schools on the weekends for athletics or they're working with foster youth and providing clothing and job opportunities to survivors. There's so many things that people are doing to create, to help Fresno be a good place to live that I think is beautiful and often not highlighted. So I'm grateful for podcasts like this that show that there are so many people doing good work. Uh, I think the negative that I would say is that it has helped me realize how much poverty impacts the community of Fresno and the Central Valley in general. And that unless we're willing to begin to address the financial discrepancies that we see in our own community, unless those of us who are more resourced are willing to share them with other people, we're not going to make a lot of changes because greed is at the center of all of these things. And so I think it really is a call for us who have more resources to continue to ask, how can I share it? Who can I invite in? And how can I resist putting a label on somebody else and determining that they don't deserve something? We always close with the same area. What are two or three books you'd recommend to listeners? I think one of the most important books I've read in the last couple of years is A Church Called Tove by Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger. So this is specifically written for church leaders, but I believe it applies to many areas beyond that. Um, Tove is the Hebrew word for goodness. So God looked at the world and he called it Tove. And this book is really to help organizations create healthy cultures and resist abuse. And I think that if more of us in leadership would read that book and engage with the discussion points, we would just have lots of healthy organizations and communities and churches that could make a much better impact. So that's top of my list. I think Deborah Rush, who is a a local survivor, she has a book out. It's called A Cry of the Heart. So for people who want to learn more about what human trafficking looks like here in the Central Valley, I would recommend Deborah's book. She highlights stories of people from the Central Valley and a really important book for people to understand our community. Okay. Uh, to close, can you share a little bit about how people can get involved with the jo- Justice Coalition if they're interested? Yeah, you can go right to our website, justiceco.org. And at the top, there is a place for you to learn more, to volunteer, to take a class. So this Thursday night, this will have already passed by the time this airs, but we are offering Understanding Human Trafficking. And I'm saying that even though it will have passed because we offer this throughout the year. So this is a three-hour class that is pretty regularly regularly offered. So when you go to that website, you can click join a class and see when the next one will be. We believe that education should come first. Often people are ready to get out there. They learn something small about human trafficking and they want to get out and, you know, bust down some fences and help people break free. But when we don't understand all of the other underlying issues, we end up creating bigger problems instead of helping people who are vulnerable. So education is really important. And Miko Anderson, former district attorney in Fresno, she uh, recently said she thinks the most important thing the community can do is get educated because all of us will one day be called on to be in a jury. And when the jury is educated, then those who have been impacted by trafficking get justice. So I think that's a really important thing to remember. So taking a class is the first start. And we have lots of different classes. Those Some are online. One is offered through Fresno Pacific University. We have self-paced ones as well as live ones. So please do that first. You can also volunteer with us. We have a couple of different direct outreaches that we run. We do lots of presentations. We also often need people that are willing to present or even to run a table at an event and just pass out information and answer some questions. We need people who are willing to be present with survivors in their needs, whether that's driving them to an appointment or helping pick up kids from school. There are lots of just doing life together things that we need people who are willing to say yes to. Okay. 
Well, and donations. I, I should mention that. We always will, donations. I will say this will be posted in time for that class. And the class is on November 30th, correct? Hey, yeah. Yeah. So uh, please go and sign up for the class. Thank you so much, Krista, for talking with me. I've learned Thank so much through this and I really appreciate the work you do in our community. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Fresno's best. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time.